Hey friends, we have a couple of announcements before we get started. First, did you see Nat's article on Autostraddle? It's about queer prepping and Kalyan's in it, along with a whole bunch of other amazing queer people, and it's beautiful. Please go see. Also, Queers at the End of the World has started a Patreon. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to support it and help us pay contributors, and also you want access to awesome extra conversations and outtakes and collaborative AI poetry, come on over and join up. And if you like supporting queer art making, but you hate presence and publicity, it's not everyone's love language, I know. You can also become a monthly supporter on Anchor. That's Queers at the End of the World on Anchor.fm. Okay, last thing. We're starting a new feature to bring you recommendations on media made by other queer and trans folks. It's going to be running once a month between our longer episodes. It's called Queers at the End of the World Presents, and we ripped that title off from Transcripts, which is a great podcast presenting trans-made audio that you should 100% check out. Okay, that's it. Let's get to the show. I was stirred by the dark mystery of mortality. I couldn't resist stealing up to the edge of doom and peering over the brink. The hint of what was concealed in those shadows terrified me. But I caught sight of something in the glimpse. Some forbidden and elemental riddle that was no less compelling than the sweet hidden petals of a woman's sex. (laughs) You know, Nat, like, I feel like pretty early on in that book, I knew deep in my heart that I was not going to get through the whole thing without hearing something compared to labia. <laughs> labia lurking behind every rough outcropping and like stark burbling Colorado river. Like it, they're there. <laughs> Rising from the burbles, peering from behind the trees. This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where an insane, all-powerful AI is forcing the world's leaders to listen to her talk about her feelings, and we're all a whole lot better for it. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're going to talk about Into the Wild. Dude, it's really fun to me that like we we kind of set off on this journey with My Side of the Mountain as the centerpiece and Hatchet, and then we got like so obsessed with this book. Yeah. I mean, partly because it's a real story. The book is about this kid, Christopher McCandless. um, And I'm hesitating on his name because throughout much of the book, he calls himself Alexander Supertramp. And (laughs) dude, side note, like, (laughs) that's awesome. And the most self-aggrandizing thing I've ever heard. Like, I know, I know. And I just feel that way about this character the whole time. Like, I just go back and forth on him because I'm like, so self-aggrandizing, so annoying. Like, I am trained to find this person endearing by everything in my culture. And like, therefore, like some of my sympathy is manufactured by that. But at the same time, like, I feel like I could like a dude named Alexander Supertramp. Dude, I feel like... (laughs) I want to be called Alexander Supertramp, like 100% strong desire. Like, I always feel like there's a certain type of like narcissistic, flamboyant masculinity that if it's genderqueer, it's suddenly awesome. But then if it's like a cis guy doing it, it seems like a total asshole. And like that game feels like an outfit I could put on that's like, yeah toxic masculinity clothing but like on me people would be like queer excellence like it's like a it's literally like a drag king name like i can totally see you know a switch and play king named alexander supertramp like performing in brooklyn 
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, speaking of cosplaying toxic masculinity, we were, I will say, a little bit ambivalent about airing this episode right now. Um, because, you know, who needs another white guy's take on another white guy when, like, a thousand white guys just stormed the Capitol a week ago and now they're coming to a Capitol near you? Like, we're all kind of dealing with a lot of intense feelings and fears and and all of this right now. Um, but at the same time, I think both of us kind of found a bit of a place for this story in the context of, like, this present moment. Yep. Yeah. I mean, partly because we just kind of had a really great time reading and talking about this book. Um, I mean, it's such an absurd book. Mm. And like, honestly, <laughs> like, and, and, you know, the, the way we're, we're kind of laughing about it is, um, I think, a, a recognition of that, that level of absurdity in this, like, appreciation of this, like, mythological creature that is the perfect masculine survivalist. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we do see a connection between all these various white men with guns screaming freedom. We said Hatchet and My Side of the Mountain were connected to the kinds of survival we talk about on this show. And that survivalist is also the creature at the center of our ongoing, very real, and very present apocalypse. This apocalypse. Like, the one we are living in with a legacy of genocide, slavery, and conquest every day. Absolutely. So so let's dive in and we'll uh, get started with the plot of Into the Wild. Okay. So another little bit of context. I think one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to look at this book in the first place is kind of fueled by the rage of my wife who hated this movie with a passion that I have never seen her feel about any other piece of media before. And um, we've kind of been talking about it off and on ever since. So a lot of the thinking that I did kind of leading up to this episode and enabling us to talk about it comes out of conversations with her. So I just wanted to acknowledge her um, at the start. Yeah. So um, Into the Wild by John Krakauer. It's based off of a feature article that John Krakauer wrote for Outdoor Magazine. And the article is about this kid named Christopher McCandless, a.k.a. Alexander Supertramp, who died while trying to survive alone in the Alaskan wilderness. And he'd been trying to survive off of nothing but his gun and a 10-pound bag of rice. And I think we were really interested in this because it's a real-life application of exactly the same themes and motivations that we see in both of the YA stories that we've been talking about. And actually, I would say that McCandless kind of counts to some extent as a boy in the woods, even though he was like, I think he was around 24 when he died. Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely the book. And I think also the movies sort of treat him like this spirit of eternal youth. Yeah. And of course, that's like a thing with white men, right? Like getting treated as innocents well into their adulthood. And I think there's something really central about that to the way that McCandless is actually received by other people all throughout the book. So he grew up in Alexandria in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and he really, really didn't get along with his family, especially his father. Um, he's obsessed with Tolstoy and Jack London and all these guys who advocate for freedom and individualism and self-reliance. And his dad is kind of an establishment guy who wants him to go to law school and settle down. And so after college, he takes off to hitchhike around the continent, first in his car and then on foot. And he does this for two years, moving from place to place. He's what he calls a leather tramp which is less sexy than it sounds and just means he gets around on foot instead of by car. And eventually he gets this idea to go and try and survive out in the wilderness in Alaska. So he gets there in April of 1992 and he takes barely anything with him, just rice and a sleeping bag and a gun and a lot of early 20th century Russian literature. 
And then he lives there for several months until something happens. And Cracker thinks what happened, I think we touched on this already, but he thinks that he accidentally got alkaline poisoning from eating the wrong kind of wild edibles. And then by September of that same year, he's starved to death. And he's found by a group of hikers and hunters. And Krakauer writes this article about it. And there's a huge backlash with a lot of folks calling it a tragedy and even more people being like, that kid was just a hubristic idiot. And Krakauer definitely falls in line with the tragedy camp. But the thing that I think really drew me to this book and made me want to spend this episode talking about it is really Krakauer. <laughs> you know, I want to talk about McCandless too. But I think it's how intensely Krakauer is just trying to jam and fold and force McCandless into this mold of masculine wilderness mythology. Yeah, I just think we need to read a few of these lines out loud because it's hard to get this across otherwise. Now, keep in mind, even Krakauer admits McCandless was not a deeply sexual person. And yet this is how Krakauer talks about literally a bunch of irrigation ditches. Emasculated by dams and diversion canals, the lower Colorado burbles indolently from reservoir to reservoir through some of the hottest, starkest country on the continent. <laughs> yeah. Um, and here's Krakauer trying to explain away why no one he talked to can ever remember McCandless having a girlfriend after high school. Like not a few of those seduced by the wild, McCandless seems to have been driven by a variety of lust that supplanted sexual desire. His yearning, in a sense, was too powerful to be quenched by human contact. McCandless may have been tempted by the succor offered by women, but it paled beside the prospect of rough congress with nature, with the cosmos itself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you gotta hand it to toxic masculinity, like, because at least sometimes it just, like, gets so intense with the internalized homophobia that it, like, in inverts on itself and you end up with, like, cosmic assholes, <laughs> like, the fact that, that all galaxies are just giant floating space anuses. <laughs> we need to have, like, a little thing where it's, like, space anus, and then that's, like, the sound effect and it kind of echoes, like, it's, like, cosmic. <laughs> Oh, like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we keep getting distracted by Puro Delights, but this book is so invested in ramming this child into the mold of like the like perfect masculine vessel that like Krakauer, I really feel like is completely obsessed with with making this person over and making them out to be like the perfect competent. It sort of pretends that he's like extremely special and like this perfect special man. And then at the same time, like so much of his specialness, you know, to me feel is like basically like he's highly educated, white and male and young and able bodied, you know, like he has like, of course people are drawn to him and attracted to him. And help him all, all the time. Seriously, it's like this attribution of specialness and um, guile and charm and, and depth. Um, uh, that's the explanation for why he's able to kind of gallivant around the country hitchhiking and sort of being a vagabond and doing all of these, these random little, um, you know manual labor jobs and um, hanging out with different kinds of people who have all kinds of different 
sort of life life circumstances um who just like give him stuff yeah like, people shower are like, him. can i adopt you as my grandson and he's like no like i don't want that and you're just like jesus like <laughs> like, at least let me drive you hours and hours well i mean there's one quote in there where he talks about um mccandless getting uh thrown in jail at the border i think um between mexico and the united states and i think the language that he concocted a story that sprung him from the slammer yeah uh crack our rights um Caught by immigration authorities trying to slip into the country without ID. He spent a night in custody before concocting a story that sprang him from the slammer. Minus his 38 caliber handgun. A beautiful Colt Python to which he was much attached. I mean, if you're not attached to your python, what kind of man are you? I, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's mythologizing, like, he talked his way out of jail right. due to his immense, like, you know, special charm. And it's like, is it special charm or is it the fact that he's like, cis, white, male, who obviously looks educated and probably mentioned the fact that he has parents who live and work in Washington, D.C. and have political influence. Like, what, you know, what is it? That got him out of jail in this situation, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, that just reminds me of, like, the points at which I began to understand that, like, not everybody got out of speeding tickets the way that I did throughout my entire youth. Because I was read as, like, a, a white girl by these cops. I was, you know, I, like, never got a ticket in my life. And I remember having that conversation with friends of color who were like, no, that does not happen to me. Like, and so I feel like John Krakauer sees himself anyway as so close to the experience of McCandless that, like, that never occurs to him that, like, McCandless's story that springs him from the slammer is not, like, a special thing. It's like, no, you're a, you're a white boy. Like, that's how that works. I know. It's deeply provoking. I mean, the whole book is just a really frustrating look at this myth-making around wilderness masculinity um because of how short-sighted it is about the level of privilege involved in basically everything this you know essentially random person did like you know the amount of focus on him is like creating this idea that he's like this unique special interesting um person worth of stu- worth studying which Honestly, that's not true, and it also is true, because most people are deep and interesting and worth studying, and the, you know, the the, the iconifying him as somehow unique is really frustrating, because it's like, there's just so many aspects to it. It's like, what was he in search of? You know, what made him so special that he was able to, like, talk his way across the country and hitchhike and be free and and sort of have this attitude of like, well, everything will just work out. And, you know, honestly, that is something I observe a lot in cis men, which is this sort of hand-weaving kind of thing of like, well, it'll work out. Right. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm not worried, though, because like whatever happens when I get there or whenever I do whatever the next thing is, it'll work out, quote unquote. And And you're like... 
you know, what makes him so unique that he's able to like, without stress, just assume things are going to work out. What a charmer. And it's like, is the guy a charmer? Or is it just that like, no matter where he fucking goes, everybody takes care of him all of the time. (laughs) Like, Yeah. It it reminds me a little bit of like, um, I I don't know if you've ever read Studs Terkel's history of the depression, hard times, but it's like an oral history of of the great depression. And for a long time in the beginning of the book, the speakers are white. And there was this one that really particularly hit me because, you know, it's this guy telling the story of riding the rails and getting caught and then put into a camp. And he's like, and then I got caught and I got put into a work camp and they paid me and I had like a bed to sleep in and I got fed three squared a day. And, you know, like basically, I mean, I think there is compulsion there if I remember correctly, but like basically he gets caught riding the rails and he gets given like a job in housing to, to probably simplify that a little bit. But like, then like a little while later, you read the story of like a black man who's riding the rails, who gets caught beaten within an inch of his life and put in jail. And it's just like, there's no, it's just so stark. It's like a completely different experience of like what it means to be moving freely, quote unquote, in America. (laughs) Well, I mean, seriously, and it just you saying that really makes me think about like, this idea of the specialness of these types of men who get the notion that they want to go out and have an experience of nature. And there's this sort of like, you know, overly passionate, even erotic examination of what is that spiritual impulse that like draws one to like commune with nature and have this like transcendent experience of wilderness. And it's just completely blind to the fact that, you know, what draws you to that is in part being able to do it in the first place and not limited by something that you have nothing to do with, but is exerting a force on every aspect of your life all of the time. Like being black and, you know, hitchhiking being an incredible amount of risk or riding the rails being an incredible amount of risk where it wouldn't be for someone uh, doing that same thing who is white. Or male. Yeah. It just pisses me off because if there's one thing I hate, it's like the making special of a particular person is fraught to me. Like, I think I would be able to accept it more if Krakauer was more honest about why this person is special to him. But it's like it's 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 sort of tried to like be done in a passive voice as though we all have already accepted the specialness of this kid. Mm-hmm. Um instead of it being this relative thing that it's obviously special to him because he's basically the same person or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that's that's actually pretty interesting because I actually don't I don't agree that I, I feel like there's there's room to kind of like wedge apart Krakauer and McCandless. I feel like Krakauer really wants to be the same as McCandless and really like like it is trying to make that identification as airtight as possible and trying to make sure that that identification then reflects back on him, Krakauer, the author, like a perfect masculinity that is not sullied by the fact that this person died in the wilderness and like i do want to say like you know christopher mccandless died in 1992 he was 24 his family's still alive like you know it's a little bit fraught to be 
talking about this nonfiction book in, but, but I feel like there is a, like, it's, it's also important to be talking about this character because he is so constructed as like, you know, there's a movie made of it. And like, he's constructed as, as like either a hero or a dupe, you know, or as like an idiot. And those are both to me kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Like either McCandless, either like Krakauer says McCandless is this perfect masculine object who never really did anything really seriously wrong. Like he, so much of the book is kind of spent on being like, people thought this was a mistake, but actually he was probably doing everything right. And it was just dumb luck and tragedy that he died, you know? And there's like that. And then the other side of the coin is, well, if that idiot knew anything before he went into Alaska, like if he wasn't so, so, so full of hubris that, you know, like, you know, which he was, he was full of hubris, but it doesn't like neither one lets you off the hook for recognizing that like he was a human person who, you know, was like trying to make sense of his life with the tools that he had. And like, you too, you know, have, have these same driving desires. And like, it's just, it's, it's, like everyone is kind of like trying to make him into either an example of the, the success or an example of the failure um, to adapt to the same stupid, toxic masculine stereotype um, where, you know, where he's either like perfectly capable or perfectly incapable. And either way, it's like, you know, there's a perfect person that they're trying to make him be and that's their own investment and not about him at all and the person that he was. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I really think you're right. Like, I think I'm I'm sad about him merging with that, the sort of toxic masculinity myth. Like, um, you know, we said, we sort of saw that with Brian and Hatchet. Like, it, it's this flip back and forth between you know, emasculation and weakness and crying and despair. And then like intuitive at one with nature, you know, hatchet wielding evolved, you know, um, nature boy. And there's no shades of gray between those two states. And, you know, in the case of a real person, the thing that's so painful when, you see that person's life story turned into that like two-sided coin is it completely eliminates the fact that that particular guy, Chris McCandless, you know, from what I can tell from the story and into the wild was trying to get outside of external narratives of what the right thing is to do in this life. And if he was searching for anything, he was trying not to be, having his life dictated to him by other people's ideas of what the right thing is to do. Yeah. So to me, the most tragic aspect of it is, I mean, in addition to the fact that he died young and it's absolutely a tragedy for his family and the people that were close to him who are mentioned in the book, you know, it's a tragedy that his story became symbolic for people instead of being what it was, which I think he was like wanting his life to just be, an adventure that had chaos and unpredictability and didn't have a larger symbolic meaning. Like he was the, the teenage Tolstoyan or whatever, which is, I think one of the, the things crack hour calls him in into the wild. <laughs> Sprang him from the slanger, that teenage Tolstoyan. 
some of the language in that book is pretty intense. I mean, from the lens of being queer, I mean, I certainly identify with the idea of like, you know, wanting to to leave structures that I would perceive as controlling my life. Like there's aspects in there where he's like, you know, fuck capitalism, fuck money. You know, I don't believe in having these things like dictate who I am. And it's like, that aspect of it seems really human and actually really fascinating to me. Totally. And there was an aspect of that that involved an encounter with nature as well. And that's where it started to become like this, the nature boy myth, I guess. Yeah, probably because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, including that he's a 24-year-old who comes from a wealthy family. Like, I just, I've met that kid so many times. I've had so many eye-rolling conversations with that kid where they talked about, like, their pure ideals of like not living in capitalism and burning all their money and, you know, and also like, you know, being great salesmen at their like local contractor shop and like, you know, just like, and, and how like, you know, one must renounce all of whatever in order to be the pure whatever. And it's just like, I feel like in those conversations, you know, I see my responsibility in those moments, like to puncture that narrative to a certain extent. And to like try and and like, you know, bring some impurity into the world that they can imagine is good, you know, because it is a total trap. And McCandless died there, fundamentally, like, I think I agree with you that there are some really appealing things about what, you know, he in his 24 year old way was trying to get outside of. Um, But he also was really attached to them. I, I think one of the one of the things that really struck me the beginning of the memoir, um, it's not a memoir either. <laughs> At the beginning of the book, <laughs> um, is when he describes McCandless hitchhiking into Alaska and he like gets into a truck with this guy who drives him, you know, most of the way to the place where he eventually dies. And the guy tries to give him a pair of rubber boots because he just sees this kid is like so unprepared. He doesn't have any of the necessary gear. So he's just like, at least take these boots, right? which again, people caring for him. And McCandless asks how much he owes him. And that kind of thing happens over and over and over again, where McCandless refuses to take, you know, refuses to take um, gifts from people kind of arbitrarily. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Very frequently, he kind of tries to pay the person back. And it's like a way, instead of being like, let's be in a mutual relationship. I will give you what you need. You will give me what I need so that we can all be people who have what we need. It's like a transactional relationship where it's like, I will only take what I need from you if you will accept money from me or even like the pretense that I would pay you. And that just feels like, you know, he thinks he wants to get outside of this, but he's also still really trapped in that system of like self-sufficiency and independence and instead of mutuality. I mean, that's what's tragic about it is like, I have a lot of sympathy for the desire to escape that. And it's tragic when you read a story of someone who has the impulse to get outside of um, this system and has no no way out. And then even has an experience of kind of having the wool pulled over their eyes as to what getting out is or means. And then that being his whole life, right? It's like, I wish that there was somebody who could have communicated with him about the idea that there is no, um, there is no purity 
There is no value clarity. Yeah, like the thing you were saying about like mutuality instead of transactionality and just like these ways that you can start to get into this other intellectual and emotional space where you're not, you know, looking at things through the lens of like either this or that. And he, you know, I think for for these types of boys that we've been reading, like there is no option for them to do that. They are trapped. And this is the only thing that they can think of that would give them any route to do anything else. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's part of what makes Into the Wild such a kind of important text to read in relation to Hatchet and My Side of the Mountain, because I think the boys in Hatchet and My Side of the Mountain are the kind of like, they're the boys that McCandless is being compared to when people talk about like, what is he? Who is he? Who should he have been? And I think they are the archetype that he's holding himself up against, you know, although in his version, it's Jack London and, uh, and Thoreau, um, or anyway, in crack hours version of him, it's Jack London and Thoreau. Um, and his idea, it's Tolstoy, right. Who are in fact, people who are complicated. Right. And I think Krakauer often reads them as like they're hypocrites because Jack London, you know, didn't just like only went to Alaska for a week. And, and it's just, it's like this question of like, if you only went to Alaska for a week, then you're a hypocrite. But like, maybe it's, maybe it's more like your system is broken. It's not that like you're a hypocrite for going there for a week. It's that like the whole idea of the only way you can prove that you're a man and is by like living in Alaska forever is like a broken thing. <laughs> right. And then what it comes down to is like, if the goal is to live in Alaska forever, then the goal is to die in Alaska. Right. And that's why Christopher McCandless is sort of like this perfect space for Krakauer to project his fantasies of like what real wilderness masculinity looks like onto because McCandless is dead. Like McCandless went to Alaska. He lived there forever. <laughs> like he lived there as long as he had left and he died there. And 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 that's sort of like the ultimate wilderness cred. Um and and I think in a lot of ways this book feels like um like just watching this painful project of trying to insist that, you know, there's something really beautiful in dying for that broken system. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that, just flipping through it to get those quotes and um, the part at the end when he kind of is like saying, Chris McCandless was at peace, serene as a monk gone to God. Yeah. Um, To me, that's just that impulse that we have to kind of tie someone's life with a neat bow once they passed away and have there be some kind of mythology of what the person was. Mm. And instead of just being able to accept that people are complicated, life is complicated, no human life adds up to one particular thing. And we can't know if he was at peace or not when he died. And I feel like it's much more of a spiritual move not to make assumptions about what was going through his head at that moment. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's interesting. I feel like it brings me to thinking about like the investment the book has in him being kind of intentionally celibate 
and his celibacy as like connected to religious fervor. And I mean, it feels like it's kind of trying to rewrite him as like, he's got that whole story about like the monks in, what is it like Scandinavia somewhere? And like these monks in their coracles, like fleeing from like a few people showing up because they're, they're so celibate. And (laughs) I mean, I, I feel like this book in a lot of ways is like a crash course in the binaries that are all part of masculine mythology and they're you know they go beyond like male and female good and bad competent and competent and like you know there's also like this idea of like continence and being able to to hold things in yourself and i think he needs to kind of make chris mccandless's celibacy into this like self-confident self-continent um reservoir of power (laughs) instead of like another complicated aspect of a person that he doesn't really understand or know. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like he's interpreting it as something that McCandless had the agency to make a choice about instead of, you know, the reality is that many things in life are outcomes of all kinds of circumstances and elements of a person's history. And, And I feel like relationships and the way you relate with sex is absolutely in that category. Like who knows what his attitude or towards sex was or relationship with it was, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly not just like clear to me that he was just making this decision to be a monk. Yeah. But it's so important to crack hour that that be explained. You know, he's got, he's got like these paragraphs on like McCandless's sexuality where he's like, yeah, he didn't have sex with women. He didn't have sex with men. He didn't seem to have sex with anybody. You know, I feel like there's a way that that threatens. I mean, clearly that that's threatening to the idea of McCandless as this sort of like powerful alpha male guy who is great at everything and that I think Krakauer really wants to construct because he, you know, as he says in the beginning, he relates very much to McCandless and I think it would be scary for him. Because he's the type of guy who sees vaginas in in ice sculptures, it would be really, <laughs> which I, I'm that type of guy too, I guess. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe just not so on the nose about it. <laughs> um. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, just that it's really. I think it's really threatening to him for McCandless to be celibate, and so he has to like. Bring, he has to like bring it back into a different archetype of masculinity, which is this one where it's like, well, I don't have sex, you know, because because like women are dangerous to my masculine energy or something like that, you know, like as opposed to like ever considering that that he might be ace, <laughs> you know, for example. Exactly. Yep. And I mean, to me, it reads as something that Krakauer has been agonizing about for years of his own life, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. He's interpreting the behavior of this person that he's never met through a lens of, you know, immense, like maybe over, over analyzing of the role sex plays in people's lives, the role sex or celibacy plays in his own life, and what that means about this particular, you know, kid that he's turned into a cipher for, you know, men everywhere who want to have experiences in the wild. Yeah. And I would say also that that's a pretty consistent thing throughout, you know, books like this, including, of course, My Side of the Mountain and Hatchet. Like, there's no sex in the woods. There's, like, mommy falcons 
and <laughs> and and Freudian hatchet, but like there's no you know I, I mean there are kids books which tend not to talk directly about sex, but there's like no they're total innocence as far as sex is concerned. They aren't thinking about it at all. I mean, I think that may be a product to a little bit of when they were written. I mean, I know we see a lot more YA literature now that does address those topics more directly. But I mean, these are teenagers. And I'm curious if there's wilderness stories about teenagers that do talk about sex, because it seems to me like there's a fear of associating sex with time in the woods. Um, And it feels a little homophobic to me. Like, it's like, it's like men are in the woods, the woods experiences, um, how did Krakauer say it, you know, the the wilderness is hot and stark and rough. And there, (laughs) there seems to be this paranoid fear that if the relationship is sexualized, then the male author writing about the boy in the woods might be suspected to be gay. Right. If the woods represents masculinity and the sort of wilderness adventure story is in a lot of ways like a a sensual sort of body centered story, then there's this sort of worry that the association of these feelings with this place um, or with this idea of wildness is also sort of kind of (laughs) gay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, there's this platonic sense of the way people enter into the woods, I think, um, in some of these books that that speaks to that for me. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, like me in the woods, like we're best friends. Like there's nothing going on between us, we swear. Like we just hang out, you know, we do bro night. <laughs> like we play video <laughs> games together, but that's it. <laughs> like, there's no secret love that we feel. <laughs> like, and you're like, okay, <laughs> got it. Right. I'm just trying to have some rough Congress with nature, but no homo. <laughs> yeah. Rough, rough Congress can mean whatever, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it can just mean like, <laughs> like tussling, you know, tussling a little bit. <laughs> just a little, yeah. <laughs> just roughing it up. Um, I, it, this is, this is totally making me think of how much nature is sexualized in some explicitly openly gay literature and media. And I'm totally thinking of call me by your name right now. It's just like nature is gay in that movie. And it's much more of a pastoral nature. It's like ponds and farm country and, you know, there's like people entering the water and there's a scene that involves fruit sex. And it's just very like an example of that, the idea of nature feeling totally sensual and lustful and sexual just to be in. And it's, it's really gorgeous. Like it's obviously a great example of like how arbitrary it is that nature is like denuded of that aspect in the stuff that we're talking about for this. Well, I think it's particularly, I think it's particularly related to the kind of like to the survival narratives that we're talking about the idea of the wild, like as opposed to, I mean, I mean, there's such a long tradition of like, shepherd stories being like, very queer, you know, all the way, all the way back through the centuries, like, you know, shepherds singing love songs to each other, and pastoral poetry as this vehicle for like male friendship in scare quotes. And I think that association, like there's, there's something in there with like domesticity and um, 
that actually I find is one of the things about my side of the mountain that makes it really different for me from the other narratives is like, you know, we talked about like the, the recipes that Sam, um, that Sam comes up with and talks about in that book. But there's also like one of the things that has stuck with me my whole life, uh, you know, even after I stopped reading it constantly and sleeping with it under my pillow, but <laughs> that stuck with me from that book is the scene where Sam, um, it's like winter and he hasn't had anything green for a long time. He's just been like living on like the nuts he stored in his, in his little tree house. And he kills a rabbit that frightful caught. And, um, and he talks about like how good the liver looks <laughs> to him. He's just like, knows he's like, just, he's just like directly wants to go for this liver. So, the, and then he eats it and, and the kind of narrative voice is like, I was drawn to the liver because I was vitamin C deficient. Right. And that was, that was in the liver. And like, that was kind of, for me as a kid, the first time I like had ever kind of heard that kind of listen to your body language and seen it illustrated and like the idea of, of your body knowing what you need. And that was like so powerful for me and stuck with me my whole life as like a kind of example of what it could feel like to like listen to your body and know, which of course, you know, is definitely something that I think is hard for a lot of queer people, trans people, fat people, <laughs> like generally. Totally. You know? I mean, that is really reminding me of when we were saying that, um, in Hatchet, there were these things that Brian just knows. And in the context of Hatchet, we were a little dubious that he would just know things the way he does in that story. Um, but I think there's something there that is compelling in these narratives that has to do with nature being an opportunity to listen to your body because the body is such a dominant presence when you're in a survival situation. And it becomes this incredible um, site of inquiry and information. And, you know, regardless of whether or not like nature is being narrated in a like no homo kind of way. And I don't like that aspect of these stories. I love the idea of, you know, the concept of being in the wild or an encounter with nature as being like an encounter with the body. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think, and I think that is one of the really compelling and powerful sort of sites where like, I could see, yeah, I could see like queer wilderness education and queer wilderness practice being like really powerful in a queer context because it can be this like process of of bodily attention and like being in place in a more full presence mind body way <laughs> um but i think that that too is kind of particularly threatening to the sort of masculine archetype of of wilderness explorer because like i mean i think that's kind of what what the sex thing is about like if you're listening to your body in the wilderness then like you know, your body could be saying some scary things to you, like that it has desires and that it, you know, <laughs> and that it's not entirely under your control and that you're not just a free individual with, you know, with total control over everything around you. Yeah. I mean, I see so much of that in Into the Wild, which 
clearly to me, there was this aspect of um, sensory and physical denial that was part of the way Chris McCandless was going around on these adventures. And I see that because I get the impression that when he was going on this journey and traveling around and hitchhiking, it seems like he was gradually starving. Yeah. Um, and there are moments when they when it talks about, you know, he said he could live on a 25-pound bag of rice for weeks or whatever, and he only took rice with him when he went to Alaska. And he was gradually losing weight and starving before whatever that was the incident of poisoning um, that Krakauer says finally was the, the what led to his death. Yeah. And like for, for me, I mean, that is like such a, a thing of trying to have control over the body um, by trying to be able to cope with a feeling of hunger all the time and denying his body nourishment and sensory pleasure and being you know, confident in this sort of like, like food celibacy, <laughs> which like, I would not want to live on a bag of rice. No, there's only so far you can go on. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sounds entirely like a legit reading that he's, he's, you know, he's gradually starving himself before he gets to Alaska. And, and the thing about this character, at least, you know, the, the person that I feel like I read between the lines of, of what Krakauer is trying to do is a person who who wants his relationship to the world to be one of like giving right but also wants complete control so yeah and you know coming out of white patriarchal heterosexist culture that makes complete sense to be like in that kind of bind because they're really I think it goes back to this problem of like, you know, he's trying to get outside of something that he can't see yet. Like he doesn't see that there is this heteronormative structure that he's trapped inside and this capitalist structure too, you know? He doesn't see that he's like constantly um asking for transactional relationships and I mean even 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 those passages where it's describing him like going to, you know, going to 14th street in Washington, DC in the 1980s, which, um, which was really hard hit by the crack epidemic, like so many other American cities and walking around and like talking to sex workers and drug addicts about like, you know, how they can change their lives and better themselves. And it's just this, it's this totally gag worthy image, right. Of this like rich white boy from Alexandria walking around 14th street being like, let me give you some advice. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. And you can just imagine all these people like humoring him. And, but the, I mean, it's the whole white savior complex, right? Which is the same process of, of like, I can be giving, but only in the context of me having all of the control and all of the power. I know. And it's just like, ugh, sorry, buddy, but that's not liberation. That's not going to get you like to the better world that you're imagining when you're like thinking of yourself as some kind of the revolutionary hero, like you're not going to get there by keeping yourself separate from people and, and getting to like keep all the control and in every interaction. And I think that's part of what makes this book feel tragic to me in spite of some of the ways that it feels like such a stereotypical story of like hubris and entitlement, I think is this sense that he is trying to get liberated. It's just like a classic example of you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Like you can't dismantle your entrenchment in a system that wants you to grow up and be a lawyer and make money and get married like your dad with 
the tools of your dad <laughs> of controlling people and controlling relationships and denying your body. Yeah, it's tragic. And it is a death trap. And it's, there's many feelings. <laughs> and one of the feelings I think that we were wrestling with, too, is that there are aspects of a story like that, that I think are appealing to transmasculine folks. And yeah, there are elements of masculinity that get into realms of toxic masculinity that are magnetic for folks that feel masculine. And I think that part of what we're talking about here is things that we have been drawn to at various times in our lives, like independence, self-determination, self-sufficiency, um, discipline, having um, control over the narrative like of what your body is and what it can do. There have been times when I've been like, you know, I live my life staring into the computer and this imaginary world I live in has so much power over me and I resist that. Um, I resent that. And I want to know that my life belongs to me. And I, I, I want to aspire to some of the ideals of masculinity that I don't think are toxic. But then I need to understand what I think is toxic and what I think is not. And I think that there's this complicated hash of stuff in any story like this where um, along the way to the death trap that's sort of lying there at the end, we can see that there are aspects of masculinity that are not violent. And yeah. those are the aspects of masculinity that I think that magnetize me. And it makes the relationship you have with a story like this as a transmasculine person, really complicated because it's not a black and white. It's not a binary of like, hate all men, hate everything about masculinity. Masculinity is the problem. Toxic masculinity is the problem. And we're teasing out where it becomes a threat to the community and a threat to this particular person who died. I think that's such a, I think that's such an important point to make. And I think that another place this connect is just the recognition that like the death trap, like the trap is in service of something else. You know, I, I think one of the things that has become really clear through these conversations we've had about these books is like in American culture, we project our desires onto the wilderness. Like this is a space where we like to imagine that we could get what we want. And I think that goes all the way back to white folks sailing on boats from Europe thinking that they're finally going to get to own some land and totally ignoring that that means genocide already for the people who are there. Just thinking about like how their family has been, you know, powerless renters on some Lord's <laughs> land that's belonged to him for as long as anyone can remember and thinking about getting theirs. Right. And I think that that like thing of projecting your desires and the things that you want onto the wilderness goes all the way from there to now. And I do think this is where it kind of comes back and connects to what happened on January 6th, which was this mob of Trump supporters storming the U.S. Capitol, because they're talking about as like as if they're storming it in defense of freedom and liberty and whatever, and what they're storming it in defense of is this pretense, the myth that they have the right to come and get theirs. Yeah. There's a cluster of related things there. 
But what I'm thinking about is how that desire projection seems part of how an unorganized mob could all end up in this rioting situation together. Because I think that there's this promise of change or transformation or this like peak moment. And because this, the nature of this particular attack was kind of distributed and it was this, you know, created on social media kind of thing happening through all these different channels and like different groups kind of coming together. There is this like sense of like, we're going to like have an apocalypse and these desires for all of these things that I need as a human being are going to be fulfilled by this moment of chaos. So I think this sort of like inability to accept that you're not always in control, the winner, the dominant is really like as an, as a sort of figure, it's like, it's like the myth. I think we see in Christopher McCandless as a person who dies from his attempt to fulfill this myth. John Krakauer comes along and I think one of the things we've really come to in this conversation, like trying to tease apart Christopher McCandless and John Krakauer, like Krakauer is not all that interested in McCandless as a person. He's interested in like patching up and repairing the myth that he thinks McCandless stands for. That's his project here is like making McCandless look like fit better into the mold of like this, you know, white masculine survivor guy. I mean, that's what the book is is kind of working on. And I think that's infuriating. And it continues to be infuriating. And we continue to come up against this choice of like, do we just patch the myth up? Do we just try and like make it fit? Or do we like acknowledge that this is a death trap? <laughs> and like that like there are many beautiful things about masculinity that we would love to do, but it does not have to hold us hostage and murder us. <laughs> like we don't have to let yeah. it do that. <laughs> I, I just I hear you saying that and I'm like, it's just so absurd that anyone would participate in that because they're patching up their own doom. And I just think about like, why would anyone like bolster up something that's dooming them to this awful fate? And of course, I think about sometimes different kinds of fates of folks who are toxically masculine. And I think that one of the most common ones is isolation and loneliness. Yeah. And I think, why would you ever voluntarily build a myth that resulted in you being isolated from humanity? But you would have to be able to see that there was a life for you on the other side of that and not feel scared that there is total annihilation if this myth dies. Right. And I think that means recognizing it as a myth, of course. Like, if you think it's your actual body, then you're a lot more likely to try and patch it up at any cost. And I think a lot of, yeah. I think that that is, for me, one of the many joys of being a transmasculine person is like, you know, I don't feel like I'm as in danger personally. I mean, I know that there are a lot of other intersecting reasons for that too, but like, I don't feel as in danger of like thinking that's my body. Although at different moments in my in my life, you know, like, some parts of it have felt compelling. Like, should I have fewer feelings? <laughs> you know, should I like, should I like be the breadwinner in my house, even though I'm like an artist, <laughs> you know, and nobody's going to pay me for this. Like, <laughs> You're like, should I be a gruff breadwinner? Yeah. Is that what my agenda is? <laughs> Breadier, winnier. <laughs> no, I feel that. I've had those moments. I mean, I don't know, just like, should I be meaner? You know, like, 
<laughs> and it's just so insane to think that, but it, it is this sort of like aspirational thing of like kind of wishing that you were like more masculine and that like masculinity is intimidating. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I, why do I have that in my head? You know, <laughs> I think because of coming from a subject position where it's a little bit easier to see the like bullshit of the, of the myth, like, you know, and the fact that it's like rotting and falling apart. Like when I think about whiteness as a myth, I'm sure that at many moments in my life, I am unconsciously doing patch jobs on that, you know, mm-hmm. when I catch myself doing patch jobs on it. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Or like the systems of my life are built to continually be participating in the patching. Like it's just uh, to just acknowledge that these things are built into the structure of our culture and our, our economic systems and, everything about how we live, which can make it, you know, as to like why people don't just let it rot. Like, I think that that can feel like an existential threat to folks sometimes. Like, I think it can feel end of the worldy. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've had the feeling before of anticipating annihilation in terms of like an identity, mm. um, an identity crisis when it, in fact, like, you know, I'm in a pr- position where like, my body will be fine if if this particular situation I'm in, group of friends, job changes. There's that feeling of like terror of what's going to happen afterwards. Yeah. And I, I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not like signing off on that, like being an okay reason to perpetuate anything, but more just interested in it as a process and, and using that information to resist it. Totally. When you say that, my mind kind of goes to this feeling of like wanting to be in space with black organizers talking about black organizing right now, like as a way through this fear. It's, it's interesting though, because I feel like also, I mean, one of the things we've been saying on the podcast kind of casually almost like, because I feel like in some communities it's like almost taken for granted at this point that like apocalypses happen all the time. That's like a phrase we've said a bunch of times. I feel like 2016 was the moment at which that concept became mainstream. And the reason for that was because of the reaction of black people and indigenous people and many people of color to the election of Donald Trump. There was a sort of like shock and terror that was going through, I think, a lot of white folks and, you know, myself included, who are moderate or left, I feel like the memories of, like, white backlash, white violence are so present with with Black people in this country that, like, you know, m- many Black activists, like, are not shocked <laughs> and, and do not feel the rug has been ripped out from under them or they have suddenly been revealed to be unsafe because they, they've already known that, you know, and Indigenous folks have known themselves to be living in the apocalypse this whole time. Um, but I would say that, like, Again, as in 2016, like the only moments in the last week when I felt like my like like clenched muscle level of panic go down a little bit has been when I've gotten to be in virtual rooms with black organizers because I had been volunteering to like call people in Georgia with surge um, before the election in Georgia. And so I, you know, learned about this call with organizers from Georgia who were talking about the victory that also happened on Wednesday there. And like, you know, I don't know how folks are feeling on the inside, but those organizers were definitely contextualizing this moment in like centuries of white mob violence um, as backlash to the kinds of changes 
that have been or that might come out of Black Lives Matter over centuries. So (laughs) even though it's like super scary and like it is happening, the impacts of people's lives are, are fucking terrible. But like to bring us back to survival and kind of like what these conversations are about, like the fact of the survival of like black organizing culture and black people through that is like the one thing that has made me feel a little bit okay (laughs) this last week. Yeah. I think that that's connected to it because actually like, like the siege of the Capitol is it's like, in some ways it's like Christopher McCandless dying in that bus. It's this moment where the myth in all it's like, like some, like it's this moment where a person or a group of people take their best shot at making the myth real, you know, freedom, the people's voice, self-sufficiency, and it's shown to be spectacularly violent, um, self-harming, harming of others. And it's a moment of dissonance between the mythology and the reality of what toxic masculinity, white supremacy is. Yeah. So this is a moment of like, we can patch it up. You know, that's where my ambivalence about doing this episode came from. Some kinds of efforts to understand can feel like trying to patch it up. Or we can be like, look, that is broken. (laughs) Like, that's what that is. It's this broken thing. And it goes all the way through the way that we have set up our whole system. And I think that because that is like taken for granted, known by Black Lives Matter organizers, that feels like a much stronger place to be thinking about the future from having acknowledged, like knowing, like we're not going to try and patch this thing up. We're going to do something else. Yes. And I, I think that it's important to have conversations of both types to think about what was and why it was, and then what could be and what we dream of. And that's, that's very general. And, but I think the more you talk about this, the less distant you become from it. And some of these things have rendered it impossible to remain distant. If, you know, every day I realize like that so much is at stake, stuff is at stake for the folks that have been radicalized and, you know, folks died in that mob. Some of the folks who died in the mob were the radicals and that is a tragedy also. Like I, I, I don't, I I don't prefer that people die and it's. Or waste their lives pursuing with all of the fervor that they have to give to the world, pursuing some bullshit. It's just too bad. It, it, (laughs) you know what um, my wife reminded me of when we were talking about this the other day, like the capital siege is this kind of moment of dissonance between mythology and reality is one of my favorite pop culture moments of my adulthood, which was the moment when the pop star Britney Spears shaved off all her golden hair and took a baseball bat, I think it was, to her boyfriend's car. And I just remember seeing that on the news and feeling absolute elation because I was a teenager when Britney Spears was like at the height and I was like a fat queer butch teenager and she just like felt like that icon of like this femininity that was being foisted on me and was just kind of like icon of objectification like women not having agency over the things that they do in the world and like 
When she was like, I'm going to shave off my head and take a baseball bat to this car and y'all are just going to have to see what this does to people. (laughs) I was just like, yes, yes, do it. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Were you like, work, bitch? Yes. So I can never, I've like, it is completely rewritten Brittany in my heart. Like, she does not make me feel bad anymore. She makes me feel good. <laughs> well, it's like, how do you relate with a myth, you know? Yeah, with a baseball bat, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just break it up. Break it up. Yeah. And, Smash it. And that's what I want for us. <laughs> you know, I want us all to like, take a metaphorical baseball bat to the like, boyfriend's car of toxic masculinity and we'll be like we'll be hitting toxic masculinity don't you know that you're toxic (laughs) oh wow oh wow my my like britney spears song references have now been exhausted so (laughs) this has been queers at the end of the world Next time on Queers at the End of the World, join us in two weeks for a conversation with poet, librarian, and educator Allison Rollins as we talk about nature, survival, and her 10-day wilderness course in the Arizona desert, where she had to survive with nothing but a bundle of reeds and a reality TV star. And in between now and then, don't forget to check out our Patreon and our new short feature coming to you next week, Queers at the End of the World presents. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fine des Ericotes by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworlds podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. If you're a queer person making apocalyptic and dystopian media, and you have something you'd like us to read, watch, play, or listen to, or you just have a great idea for a topic we should cover on the show, get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right, good luck out there, dear hearts. No, no, hang on, hang on. He spent a night in custody before being stirred by the dark mystery of mortality. <laughs> like not a few of those seduced by the wild, McCandless was a natural. He headed to the crags at every opportunity, blubbered, screaming obscenities until he grew hoarse, trying to slip into the country without ID, cranking out 400 push-ups every day, and walking two and a half miles to school. He may have been tempted by the sucker offered by women, but it paled beside the prospect of a handgun.